This is Off the Record Podcast, and I'm your guest host, Sergey Ross. Here we talk to CEOs and venture capitalists about their entrepreneurial journey, how they jumped off the plane and, well, didn't crash. And today I'm here with Nick Adams, who didn't really know what he wanted to do when he was growing up, like most of us, uh, worked in a law firm through most of the college, ended up in joining a Boston startup for a 13-year run in sales and marketing. And then fast forward to today, he's a managing partner and co-founder of Differential Ventures. Nick, thank you for coming. Great to be here. Thank you. How, how, how long did you take, it, it took you from leaving sales and marketing, uh, where you spent so much time, to be an actual VC? It was surprisingly fast. Um, I was, the story is I was kind of winding down time at my last uh, startup. I knew the company was going to be acquired soon and uh, assumed I'd be fired uh, soon, soon after that acquisition. So um, I, I'd gotten to the point where, you know, I, I, I didn't grow up with any money. Um, so I, I kind of had to make some to go out and take a, a big risk as an entrepreneur. And for me, that was actually, I was never a tech startup founder. Um, but I was a venture capitalist uh, founder. Um, so it was in 2015, and I decided around that time I was going to go back to school. Um, I'd done my MBA already, but I felt like I really wanted to do kind of a global finance, learn more about becoming a, a true fund manager, and also just send a signal I was ready for something else to the market. And um, my first week in class uh, over in Hong Kong, uh, where I went to school, um, I said I was Nick. I worked for a tech company and was looking to make the move into venture capital. And one of my classmates, his brother, happened to be leaving a fund in New York. And a month later, I was hired at Flatiron Investors here in New York and was kind of off and running from there. I thought it was going to take me at least a year full time. It took, it yeah. took about a month. So I was, I was pretty lucky. Well, there you go. State your intentions. <laughs> exactly. Have you, have, you, have you considered an entrepreneurial route, like starting a company? No, no interest. I, I, I was really uh, true. Despite not being a, a CEO of a tech uh, startup, I had a, a lot of responsibility at a pretty young age, um, probably too much responsibility at a young age. And I was really tired and worn out um, as, a, as an operator, as we you know, tend to call it. Uh, yeah. When you're, for whatever reason, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur and then all of a sudden you become a VC, you become called a former operator. Um, and uh, I don't have any desire to do it ever again. I like what I do now much, much better, actually. What, well, uh, what's the, the downsides? What are the downsides of being a VC? Because this role is not for everybody. We'll, oftentimes we see a lot of entrepreneurs, they sold their company, they exited well, maybe they exited a couple of times, they want to go to, into VC, they jump in and like, oh, actually, that doesn't look like a good, op good fit. Totally right. I mean, I see... The biggest reasons why VC doesn't work for a lot of people is, um, A, you don't have a ton of control over any individual company. Uh, I'm fortunate to you know, be a uh, you know, partner and, and um, you know, leader of, of Differential. Um, but as an investor and board member, you don't have a lot of control. And even when I sit on, on boards or an investor in a, in a company, I usually tell the founders, you know, we make recommendations and, and you make decisions for the most part, and it builds a good rapport. Um, but a lot of people who are you know, former operators, CEOs, really like to control. Uh, a lot of them are very passionate about one particular issue or topic. Um, I, I'm not. I actually really enjoy being behind the scenes and being a you know, coach uh, as somebody who's made a lot of mistakes in, in the past. Yeah. Um, and helping to advise founders who are going through it for the first time and learning how to do all this stuff. And 
Um, that part's fun for me. I enjoy that more so than being in charge of the day-by-day minutia of, of any one particular startup. And my, my passion is really around data and AI and machine learning and where it's gonna go over the next you know, 20, 25 years. And being able to have a VC fund with dozens of portfolio companies uh, tackling various parts of that problem, that's fun for me. So totally. I, I can see it from just a different, kind of a different level rather than looking at any one individual problem within, um, within the whole realm of opportunities within uh, machine learning AI. Do you uh, take, whenever founders reach out to you, do you take meetings even if they're not from the industry that you focus on? Or would you be more like laser focused, like, look, that's not really where I could help. That's not really where my expertise reach out to so-and-so. Uh, it, it's gotten to be impossible to take, you know, res- even respond to every, every inbound and, and every uh, pitch deck that comes in. Um, so we just had our annual investor meeting. So these numbers are very fresh on my, on my mind. Um, through September of this year, we received over 4,000 pitch decks from various places. Uh, we have a team of, of five uh, full-time on our investing team. Um, across our team, we've taken over 1,900 meetings, individual meetings, not even multiple people on, on, a, on a meeting. Um, so it, it's a lot, and, and um, that uh, only represents meetings with about uh, 25% of the companies that have actually sent us a, uh, a pitch deck. So we narrow it down pretty quickly. What I, what I tend mm-hmm. to find is about 50% of the stuff that comes in just isn't in our domain at all. Either it's you know, way too late. Um, we're seed investors. You know, we write checks of you know, quarter million dollars to $2 right. million. Dollars. So it's going to be a pretty small round and pretty early. And you know, we, we get pitches for you know, Series B or C companies, just not, not the right stage, or just totally outside of our, our thesis. We don't invest in hardware well, like, companies. Like you said, people don't really do their research. <laughs> people <laughs> don't always do their website. research. <laughs> you check out our website, you'll know pretty quickly. And I get it, some people are just trying to do a quick blast and hit a bunch of investors, um, but you know, we, just, we, can't, we can't meet everybody. So you, 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 told, uh, you told me uh, the last time we chatted, uh, founders need to showcase their value, preferably in five slides. So like when you're when you are pitching, provided you did all the research and, and you are a, a decent fit, like you're not, you're not showing the, the punchline on slide 40. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strange problem. I, I, I blame Shark Tank for this. I think um, everybody's watched, you know, the founders come out on Shark Tank and give these long narratives about the market and so forth. And, um, you know, sometimes it's like sitting through, through an MBA class or an MBA project um, about the background. And, and the reality is if, if a VC is, you know, going to spend any time on on your deck uh, at all after the first you know three or four slides, and, and even more so, take a meeting with you. They probably have some level of familiarity with the market and, and the problems, so you can get to that really really quickly. Um, and then, you know, the the shocking thing to me or the frustrating thing for me is sometimes I'll I'll be going through this long deck and I'll be kind of losing interest, and I'll get to the end and see. You know, my God, this company has like amazing traction for where they are, or you know, their founders are superstars in this space. Like, we need to, we need to meet these people, um, but you really want that upfront. You think about four thousand pitch decks across five people on our team. Somebody looks at all of them, but but they don't all get a a you know ton of uh, eyeball uh, time. <laughs> so you want to get to the the kind of hard hitting stuff right away. Uh, I had an opportunity to work with uh, with a guy who was. Um uh, one of the VPs of strategy at, at a bank, at a local bank in Canada. And he was like, mm-hmm. uh, like a master of like uh, all those uh, HBR, like Harvard Business School case studies. 
and you know you would prepare decks for him and he would review it and he's super knowledgeable into it in it and one of the techniques he used which kind of reminds me or, or sort of reminds me of what you just said is you know you have your front page first slide and he removes that slide and looks at you like and most of the time nothing happens it's like <laughs> right. the first if you take the, out the first slide it's still fine totally right yeah it's funny <laughs> it's uh there's so many little techniques you can you can do it's it's great it, you know sometimes it's like the old McKinsey approach of, you know, tell, tell your audience what you're going to tell them, tell them what you want to tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Um, it's a pretty good structure for a deck also. What do you think, Nick? How much time or how do you, uh, if you're a founder, how much do you, should you talk about or spend time on talking about the market and the market problem before you actually go into, hey, do you actually have any traction or, uh, and, and the, the actual value proposition? How much do you spend time on the, the, the higher level perspective? I mean, I think if you're, you know, in typical elevator pitch fashion, um, you know, if, if I were to catch you on the street and, and pitch you my idea, I think you've got realistically, you know, it's pretty well shown that people have about 45 seconds of attention span before they need a, a, a mental break. Um, so I, I think you have to get to the point if you're if you're verbally giving somebody a pitch or even if you're just kicking off your you know, 30 minute long or, or 60 minute long presentation to an investor, I think you have to get it to the punchline within 45 seconds. Now, after that, you can let the conversation go wherever you want or wherever the investor wants to take you, right? But if you can hit your, hit your high points of, you know, what are we doing? Why is it important? Um, and how, are, how is this team, this company uniquely qualified to solve th this problem? And then if you have one or two data points under, under that or proof points under that, if you can knock that out in 45 seconds, then you've got a pretty good shot at, um, you know, letting the investor take you down the market opportunity uh, or asking more questions about the market opportunity, the size of the market, um, mm -hmm. show you've done your homework or, you know, other questions about the team, the, the um, you know, financing, the traction, right. whatever it is. Have you had um, any uh, presentations or pitch decks that stood out to you? You kind of look at it as a reference now that there was there were quite different than any other ones because I mean they are all the same there they have all the same kind of flow yeah and maybe something comes comes up to mind if if it doesn't well we can come back to it later yeah we uh, let's come back to it I mean they um yeah I, I think it's interesting when people want to do something creative and try and stand out with their their presentation just in terms of style um yeah. but it's funny how much you know we're, we're kind of programmed to um, interpret data in a very consistent and similar way. So um, it, it's, like, it, it's like making a beautiful resume, right? If you, if you make this great creative resume, uh, but it's for the finance world or for a venture capital job, you might not get the looks that you, you want. <laughs> um, yeah. if, it's, if it's for a creative role, you might be okay. Um, but it's interesting. I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen the most beautiful decks um, kind of get passed over mm -hmm. because they, they sort of confuse people who are used to seeing, you know, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 pitch decks a year in a particular right. kind of cadence or format. Well, there is a reason why everybody and, and the preferred storytelling structure is three acts is because our brain thinks that way. If you take out the the, the setup, you kind of jump into <laughs> conclusion or summary. Uh, it doesn't quite work very well. The brain yeah, gets it gets a little confusing, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, well, Nick, you talked about uh, the importance of um, and and something that entrepreneurs don't do enough is like getting out of the building, 
Like we have all the spreadsheets, we have all the Google charts, half of them are for free and all the, all the resources, but yet you still need to get out to get that learning. No question. One of, <laughs> I, it's, I say this somewhat jokingly, but one of the scariest things I'll see in a, in a presentation or, or in a uh, due diligence process is a beautifully you know, constructed Excel spreadsheet. Um, it's great. I love people who can plan and it's helpful as an investor and for reporting purposes and everything else. But it also scares me at the seed stage, especially when you have to get out there and roll up your sleeves and beg, borrow and steal for your initial customers and you know, get people to come join your company for less money than they're, they're used to used to making. And um, especially in today's competitive environment, Apple or Google will probably pay them half a million dollars a year to come in as an engineer. And, um, you know, you guys That's right. get them to join a, you know, join a, a startup with a few million dollars in seed funding. It, it's tough. So I, I um, you know, I really appreciate the founders who understand the metrics and how to run a business and, and what to be looking for from a you know, KPI uh, level. Um, but uh, I probably have a bit of a bias towards those scrappy founders who just get out there and figure out how to get stuff done and, you know, put the numbers together on the back end. Do you, do you scan for that in a sense that like, um, how do you like score, um, um, let's say, I, I don't know what your model is to score the founders and, and like how convincing it is, but like, would you, would you give them a little bit more if they, if they actually went, if they did go out there and, and, you know, like hustle to get the, to get the customers, like. Uh, by hand, effectively. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I mean, at the seed stage, you don't always have a whole lot to go on, right? And for, yep. for us, and we're, where we invest in a pretty technical uh, sector, um, it's interesting because if, if you're kind of a really deep tech uh, platform, um, we're probably looking for somebody that's got a PhD or like r really significant technical experience um, and they don't necessarily need to have traction. They probably won't have traction, honestly, mm -hmm. because um, you know the, the platform is so complex. They're probably investing in pre-revenue. Um, right. So we're, in that case, we're usually looking for their technical experience, but also uh, you know business savvy, either in the form of a of a co-founder or just in their own you know kind of unicorn. <laughs> it's kind of a unicorn mm -hmm. CEO or, or founder that that can do both. Um, but we're looking for that there. When we're looking at more of an applied AI solution, more of a, a, a vertical use case, then traction is, is pretty necessary because usually in that instance, it's not the genius AI that's mm -hmm. going to um, uh, make the company successful. It's gonna be good enough technology uh, in a scalable fashion with just great, amazing early hustle, ability to go to market and, and um, kind of arbitrage the um, you know, the sales and marketing component of it. So that part's definitely helpful when we're looking at that type of a company. Mm -hmm. well, what, what do you, uh, like, do you uh, look at other, like what, what other, I, th I would say, standout qualities do you find um, founders that you've invested in have? Besides the fact yeah. that they have passion, they think about the problem day to day, that, I mean, that's kind of a baseline, super necessary. But like, um, well, what are some, do you have any other like things that, that stand out? Yeah, I mean, the hardest thing to get to is is um, the why. What, what's their motivator for doing what they're doing? Being an entrepreneur and, you know, candidly being a, a founder of a venture capital fund is a crazy thing to do. Um, and you really have to understand why somebody is in it and, and why they're going to stick with it um, when the inevitable bumpy times come come along. And um, it, it's amazing. Like, th there are so many different reasons why 
um, people are driven to do what they do. And um, it doesn't necessarily matter your, your, your background, you know, uh, socially, politically, demographically, um, everybody's got a different motivating factor. Um, but I would say, I'll blame Shark Tank for this one again, that we've, mm -hmm. we've kind of glorified the, uh, the idea of being a venture capitalist, the idea of being a, a startup founder, um, and, you know, really underestimate. I think a lot of founders want to look like a founder or want to look like a venture capitalist, but don't always have a really good appreciation for how freaking hard it is day in and day out. Uh, I think we we should probably include. I don't know if Theranos is uh, should be on this list, but uh, uh, that was <laughs> that was a big one. That was a big one, yeah. And I, I you know, I, I do worry there's going to be more and more of of that type of uh, fraud. Maybe not necessarily at that scale, but you know, so much money and things moving so fast. Um, right. Yeah, diligence is not not what it used to be. But 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 that's right. Like, and, and I've spoken with with quite a lot of VCs, and, and what they say is very interesting. Is this this uh, this chain of diligence in a sense that like if I'm a startup founder and I've already have benchmark invested in me, and then I'm coming to you and you're Sequoia, you're like, yeah, that looks pretty good. Like it's it's you it's already like that that fog almost. Uh, and, and if we look at the Theranos story, she had this partnerships. It wasn't Walmart. It was um, one of the. Uh, one of your biggest pharmacy chains. I forgot what it was, which one it was. Yeah, Walgreens, and, yeah. Walg Walgreens. And yep. and then when she was actually raising, it was like, oh, Walgreens, of course. So right. it's like that, 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 that sort of chain that just messes everything up. It, it sure does. I mean, um, it, I think we, we probably, as, as VCs, probably give each other too much credit. Um, and I think the, the partnerships and the, you know, the logos that go on a deck are sometimes really misleading. Um, and it's, it's, critically important to drill down and find out what those relationships actually are. And um, in today's, you know, compressed fundraising environment, it, it can be hard to do um, because there might be another investor coming along that will write the check without doing any diligence because, um, you know, maybe it's Tiger and, and losing a $2 million seed investment doesn't really move the needle for them. But, uh, you know, a $2 million investment for us is extremely meaningful and, yeah. um, you know, everyone's important. So you definitely feel the pressure and you just have to work faster to get to the answers that you, you, you need to get. Um, but it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a, it's a crazy environment. Why do you think, uh, Nick, why do you think founders don't ask a lot of times you, uh, what would happen if things don't go right? Like how do you react as a, as a, as a venture capitalist, as a partner, things went uh, sideways, which they almost always do. Like what would be your, role in that why why do them why they don't spend time on on that aspect or kind of consider that human nature <laughs> everybody right. nobody thinks that they're going to be the one that that things don't oh, go yeah. perfectly right right um so every 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 pitch deck we get is up and to the right nobody nobody shows us the one that's kind of flat or uh you know it's gonna be a, a, a tough year ahead of them <laughs> um it's human nature, um, but it's it's really important to know. And when you go into any relationship, um, it, it's you know you go through a legal process, you go through a term sheet process, and it's uncomfortable. Um, but you're you're you know hammering out what happens when things don't go right, if things don't go right. Um, and it's important to take that time and, and think through it. And um, you know it's important for for founders to understand too. Um, and I just think most people are looking to either, you know, fund their business and, and do all the other things that they have to do 
building building a product, you know, selling, mm-hmm. dealing with their employees, and and you know, keeping their lives on on track. Um, and if somebody's willing to write them a check, and um, mm-hmm. they don't have a whole lot of other options, which is often the case for seed founders, um, you know, you're just going to kind of push things along and try and close it instead of just take a step back and think, is this really the right move for me long term? Yeah. How many founders do you get, um, Nick, or or gotten that actually would have been better off bootstrapped or could have done it in a bootstrap way that would make more sense? A a lot. I mean, in terms of our portfolio, um, I don't think we really have any in in the portfolio necessarily where I can say this would have been a better, um, you know, kind of family business or or bootstrapped. Um, I mean, bootstrapping to a certain point is is always a great way to go because there's the chance it might just take off without outside funding. It, it's rare. It's extremely rare, but if you can do it, it's great. You can own more of your company for, for right. longer. Um, and it just gives you some options when you get on the VC track at the seed stage, like you're going down a certain path and you'll, you'll know pretty quickly, probably within two years or so where you really, where you stand, um, in the, in the portfolio of a, of a fund. And, um, you know, there, there's very limited optionality from there um, for your for your business. So, it, right. I, uh, I, I, I actually I do have a bunch of pitches that that I'll sit mm-hmm. it on where, uh, you know, I, I think it's a super cool technology product, whatever. And um, but I don't want to be an investor in it. I just don't think it can be big enough, or you know, maybe the, don't think the founders are quite ready for what it means to be a VC backed um, you know startup. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- th- there's certainly times where I, I end a, a meeting and say, look, I'll, I'll be a customer here, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the right investor for you. And that's pretty, pretty sincere, um, hard, hard thing to say. Um, but you know, it's, it's true a good amount of the time. But better, better for long term. For sure. Oh yeah. No question. Um, I was going to ask you a personal question or more personal question to you. Um, you said one time at one point in your career, you, uh, overvalued yourself or you, uh, you had that part, that time when when you had a different perspective uh, on, on on what you were offering. What what was it about? Tell tell us the, that story or that that whole situation. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, for me, I, I you go through an interviewing process, right? Uh, this is back in my startup days before before I became an investor, and um, you're interviewing and, and you want to you have certain things in your mind that you you want out of your career, your, yourself, your next company, whatever. Um, and I had a few of those things in my mind and I had a, an, an offer in front of me to be a VP of sales, um, and, you know, paid me some more money, gave me the title I wanted, got me back into uh, early stage startup. Um, but it, it was, it was also just not the right fit for me. And I knew that culturally, um, it wasn't going to be right. I really didn't love the, the product. Um, and I, I thought I could fix it. I thought I could. Yeah, I thought I could. I thought I could, you know, communicate or or change my way through the cultural issues, manage my way through the cultural issues, and I thought, you know, if, if uh, I could just be left to my own devices and sell and and do my job my way, um, that, you know, it didn't really matter if I didn't like the product that much or the market we're going mm-hmm. after, and it just wasn't true for me. Um, you know, I, I I probably gave myself too much credit. Uh, I probably gave my communication skills too much credit. I probably gave my leadership skills too much credit. I probably gave my sales ability too much too much credit at that point. 
and um, it's the wrong fit. And I had to uh, address that pretty quickly. And I also learned that if I'm not passionate about something, if I don't really believe in, in what I'm doing and, and mm-hmm. um, stand behind the product, I can't sell it. I'm not a good salesperson if I don't believe in what I'm doing. I'm actually a terrible salesperson. So right. um, through that, I definitely learned that th- there are some things you just can't fix and um, you, have to be, you have to be okay with that. And it's probably you know, exponentially more true as an investor um, than even as a as an employee, you know, I was just you know, C level person in this company, and um, you know I still couldn't couldn't move the needle in the ways I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, on this specific note, I was uh, watching uh, one of the guys who does um, film reviews. Seems like quite uh, far shot, but but he made exactly the same point. He basically does reviews on movies. Um, he's like YouTube channel, like in millions. The guy's a phenomenal pro. But what he talked about is he said, look, uh, if you want to do movie reviews and there are a lot of other channels who do it before you do it go look at those channels and really see do could you actually go deeper uh, and not just like rephrase and do have basically the same conversation as everybody else because if you don't really have the knowledge and the interest um, then just there's no point in doing it because everybody does the same thing and if you don't have that insane interest um, that is required that for you to send out then just don't do it uh, and that was specific YouTube example, but it's exactly the same thing. I think applies to um, to sales. Is if you don't have that that interest, that other guy who just wakes up thinking about that product, then why? Like like it just it's not gonna happen. Like it's not possible. It's totally true. Le- lesson learned the hard way for me, quite honestly. Yeah. Right. Right. No, that makes sense. Uh, so so what are you uh, what are you excited about right now? What's going on? Like what what are some of the latest projects that uh, that you are uh, uh, that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, as you know, we're, we're, we're kind of AI, machine learning geeks. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff happening there. I mean, it, it's funny, kind of the, the narrative around AI and machine learning. People think it's you know, so over, overblown and overhyped and, and everything mm-hmm. else. And you know, the reality is we just, people are just learning how to do it um, in the right ways. And, and to, to actually deploy machine learning at scale and, and make meaningful algorithms and you know, build them appropriately and, and monitor them over time it takes a lot of a lot of work. And there are only so many pros in the world that know how to do this. So um, uh, we're really still at the early days of machine learning and AI and, and meaningful uh, algorithms being deployed at scale. So uh, for us, we're, we're looking at all sorts of new things ranging from, you know, actual deep infrastructure architecture to, to make that possible uh, faster um, and with, with more privacy and, um, and then also, um, looking at a lot of interesting other use cases, places where we haven't actually, um, you know, technology has been slow to adopt in some industries and, and even within some job functions within, um, within companies. Um, so we've, we've seen a bunch of things. We're looking at stuff in manufacturing right now, um, which is, you know, traditionally not one of our, um, you know, most comfortable areas and, seeing a lot happening in the financial services world. And, um, you know, and then one of the most surprising things for me is how much capital and time we spent in the HR and, and the hiring space. And I think, uh, you know, certainly COVID and, and remote work has um, accelerated progress in that world quite a bit. So, right. well, yeah, talent retention is a big, big challenge. Huge. I mean, it's unbelievable. The, the I mean, war for talent right now is remarkable. 
Yeah, absolutely. Who's who's um who do you really look up to in in the AI world? Like who's really crushing it? Um, could be anyone from small players to obviously Tesla, but that's like a standard pick. Um, who who do you like? I mean, I actually this isn't necessarily who I like, but you have to give credit to to what they've done. I mean, you know, Facebook is off the charts, brilliant, scary use of of, of AI. And um, in so many ways, I, I dislike Facebook, and I think what they've done is, is horrifying. But in terms of what they've done, from, from a you know, technical perspective, is, is absolutely remarkable. Uh, you know, on a, on a less evil basis, I mean, what Amazon's done is, is super impressive. Um, and, you know, I think it's less, less well-documented, very private place. But, you know, my partner, David, came out of Renaissance Technologies, which is a notoriously um, uh, secretive uh, place. Uh, what they did 15, 20 years ago um, around you know, becoming a, a quantitative hedge fund is to this day still, still amazing and, and uh, you know, groundbreaking. Um, right. And you know, simple AI in, in a lot of ways relative to what's you know, available now, um, but super impressive just the, the fundamentals and nuts and bolts of data science and how they went about it doing what they did and returning whatever 40% a year for, for 15 years. Um, there's, there's some pretty impressive stuff out there. And it's only going to accelerate, which is exciting for us and exciting for, for all the investors out there. Yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. I'm just, uh, you know, want, want to make sure we have the right guardrails in place. And, you know, we like investing in, in responsible AI, actually. And, and I think we have a, a healthy expectation on, on what the limitations of AR and machine learning uh, might be. Not that we're opposed to, you know, trying things out that might break those limits or, or test those limits, because um, that's, that's venture capital. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I, I think there's you know things that can realistically happen um, in a much shorter period of time. That's really interesting, exciting, and uh, a little bit scary in some ways. Um, do have do have my concerns about what some of the fallout could be, but generally speaking, pretty pretty exciting next five or ten years. Totally. Well, we are out of time, Nick. I want to thank you. This was awesome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for chatting. Um, this was great. Hopefully our audience will uh, get some good takeaways from this conversation. Any final messages you want to add? Uh, links, people, what they should check out? Um, anything, um, parting thoughts? Yeah, sure. So uh, you can always find me on LinkedIn is, is great. Just Nick Adams at Differential Ventures. Um, I'm not a very active Twitter user, but I'm, I'm on there. It's just Adamamos11, A-D-A-M, AMOS, the number 11. And then our website is uh, uh, differential.vc. Those are usually the best places to, to find me. Well, there we go. If you guys are looking for capital, reach out to Nick. And before you do, check out his website to make sure it actually is a good fit and it's the industry that he is working in, or at least considering. And thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't take it for granted. We're out. We are proud.